Welcome back to Meet the Creatives. I am here with Jessica Hellfan. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Pleasure to be here. This whole podcast is in a roundabout way, uh, or actually kind of directly is a result of Design Observer from, you know, Debbie Millman and all his articles and Sean Adams and the entire staff really there at Design Observer were those, the inspiration for this podcast. So thank you so much for having the idea to do that and to... Uh, to come up with that because I'm, I'm loving it. And I've met so many awesome people because of sites like yours. And uh, so thank you. Okay, so first question, you ready? I'm ready. So you, you recently ready. announced that beginning on July 1st, you will join the Yale School of Management as faculty in design alongside uh, Design Observer co-founder, Michael Beirut, who was just recently on the podcast. Hello, Michael. Uh, I understand that this is an extension of your work as senior critics at the Yale School of Art um, at what point did you and Michael decide that it was kind of time to take the next step and venture further into the uh, into, into Yale? Well, it's um it's an excellent question for which there are probably a couple of answers. Um, we started Design Observer in two thousand and three, back when a blog was a thing, right before social media, when people commented and the conversations that took place around the topics and the issues that we raised really happened on Design Observer. And so, over the course of I would say the last six or seven years since social media has become a different way for that, those stories and those conversations to travel, uh, Design Observer has, I think, I wouldn't say lost its footing, but we've really tried to kind of reinstate and reassert a kind of conversation around design that is happening in a kind of disenfranchised way, which is to say these sort of looped ecosystems around social media. So Design Observer has been, I think, uh, we have been thinking for quite a bit of time now uh, about how to re- uh, engineer our focus. So that's the design observer part. Right. Uh, Michael and I have both separately and together taught at the School of Art at Yale for many years. Uh, so there's there's a piece of it that's at Yale, but the, the biggest piece, I would say, is that the invitation came from the School of Management. So uh, I think that places like, certainly Stanford, where there's a uh, D school, which is part of their, the design effort is part of their School of Engineering. Uh, MIT now has an interesting program in design, engineering, and business. And the School of Management at Yale was really looking to find their own way uh, and to really not duplicate the efforts of those other schools, but to really try and understand how they could mine the resources here, which is not to say that those other schools don't have resources, but the ones here I think are quite particular. And that's what got us interested. So right. our, what we wanted to do is start our own thing and not, not duplicate the efforts of another school, but to really start something new that lives, I would say, at the nexus of design and business, but also very strongly identifies itself as something that could only exist at Yale, which is a place that is pretty extraordinary in terms of its research facility. Right. Uh, so if we want to do a project that involves, I don't know, the School of Public Health, there is a School of Public Health. There is an engineering department. There's a drama school, an architecture school. Uh, and the School of Management itself has this incredible world-class brand new building that was built by Norman Foster. So if I want to bring in a speaker from Japan, a speaker from Spain, uh, I can do it in real time in, a, in the classroom. So, yeah, it's really it's so exciting. We're so you give me a scholarship, I'll come. I'm kind of tight so, on funds right now. And, and the students there, uh, th this is, I think, maybe um, it's a longer answer maybe than you wanted. And I'll no, it's okay, please. Stop at a moment, but uh, one of the things that's really great that Michael and I have been very fortunate, uh, blessed, I would say, to um, learn about is that there's a really active design community at the business school led by the students. 
Right. So they have a design and innovation club, which has its own curriculum, awesome. which has its own programming, which has its own budget and its own incredible students leading this for, uh, sort of um, initiative to bring design into conversation at every level at the business school. And so they were the ones who really, I wouldn't say pressured the faculty, but I think encouraged the faculty to look and see if we could begin to have a curriculum at Yale that was uh, more deeply engaged with design around the other things that they learn. Let me just say many of which, most of which Malcolm and I are not experts in like things like finance and right. organizational behavior and all these things that are important for running businesses, but they're now starting to see that design is one of those competencies they want to engage in. So that's where we are. And we start this week. That's awesome. There seems to be, um, I think Pentagram kind of says it quite eloquently when they say like a, a plea for plain English um, in the design community. Um, there's just, you know, there's all these buzzwords and phrases. Um, I know you and Michael on the observatory talked about, um, the name escapes me, but there is that, uh, that website that, that those, those guys made with all, like the fluff and like the pictures, brand LE or whatever it was. Oh yes, Blandly. yes. Brandly. Genius. Genius. I'll put it in the comment section. Uh, cause it was really kind of funny and kind of. A parody you know. of, of Brandon. Yeah. yeah and, and you know, just today something, um, I don't actually follow design taxi, but Somebody posted a thing about Design Taxi explaining design almost like a listicle, like a formula of all the things you need to do in the right. process of becoming a designer. And the first thing was empathize, which was spelled wrong. Oh, my God. And so I'm not – I don't like <laughs> shaming people or outing them, but it just cracked me up that if you – you know, as a writer and a teacher and uh, someone – I mean, writing for me and making things in the studio are very fluid. I'm very um, agnostic on the subject of pictures and words. Right. Um, but I think just as you want to bring your best game as a designer, you can't bring your best game if you spell things wrong. I think your yeah. credibility is really shot to hell. Yeah. So, plus, I think the idea that design is a formula is a problem. And one of the things that I think we're up against teaching in a business school, uh, business people are very focused on outcomes and stakeholders. Right. Word I've never used in a sentence before right now. Slideshows. They want <laughs> outcomes, right? And I think designers privilege the process. We know that you might be going this way and you might go this way and that's where the solution is. It's maybe to the left of center, to the right of center. This is why John Bielenberg, uh, who's somebody you should have on your show if you haven't already, talks about what he calls thinking wrong. Right. Designers are, are, are ex sort of by their very nature experimental and good at improvising, which doesn't mean they don't know their craft, know their things, but they need to mix it up a little bit. And I think that we need to, uh, I think, take the focus away from those outcomes to open up conversations that might result in better outcomes. Right. And that's, so that's one thing that I'm, I'm very aware of. But I, I just want to clarify one other thing, or maybe amplify one other thing, which is this idea of the teaching design as a second language, something I'm really excited about. So if you go to Spain, you don't really need to be fluent to order off the menu. But it might help you to know that certain things about Spanish grammar exclamation point being upside down at the beginning of a sentence, I don't know, something, right. might actually help you acclimate in a culture that's different from the one that you are coming from. And I think that's how we're positioning design. We don't need to turn 600, and there are 600 master students there, we don't need to turn them into designers. But we need to um, help them understand design as a competency that might be outside their immediate range. Uh, I want to switch gears for a moment here yeah. um, and talk a little bit about Getting back to Design Observer, um, you know, it was founded in 2003. It started with a simple WordPress uh, uh, website, and as of two, you know, cut scene to 2016. You guys now have 800, uh, 864,000 followers on Twitter. 
which is really impressive. I think I, I think, I think Meet the Creatives has like 113 now. So I'm catching up. Just 113,000? No, 113 people. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's so adorable. Yeah, I know. I know. Go Meet the Creatives. I know. I like it. AIGA is starting, is starting now to, uh, to like and, and share my things, though. So that's a good sign. Yeah, so. let me just say that um, I love every single one of our followers. Yeah. But it is free. That's true. It's free to follow stuff. So we, we, I think we put a little bit too much currency in what we think liking can be. Yes. Because yes. it doesn't oblige people to do anything other than click a button. Right. So That's our true. influence, I think it's, I, I, we, went, we measure our success in terms of those, those, uh, those quotients, but I'm not sure yeah. we should. It's true. And, and there, I, I've gotten a lot of likes and a lot of comments and stuff. But like one of the coolest things that happened from this podcast was that um, – I had a friend, actually, I never knew him, and uh, he was Josh Lepley, he was just in the podcast with the last guest. Um, I actually met him because of this podcast, and I thought to myself, like, that's, that's pretty extraordinary that there's somebody who's, like, right down the road from me, and, you know, now we have, he's a real person, we have a real friendship, yeah. and uh, that kind of came out of this, and th that's far more rewarding than when a video gets, you know, like, 200 likes or something like that, and just knowing that there are people who are kind of, like, paying attention, that's, like... That's way cooler than some sort of like, you know, quantitative, you know. I think people can that's, kind of drive themselves crazy doing that. And that's, you know. Yeah. Good for you. That's an excellent way to look at it. Um, so when you first started this idea, um, you know, did, did you ever think that, that it would manifest itself into something that was so huge and could, you know, make tall, skinny, white kids want to start their own podcast? <laughs> I'm, I, I, I think you should give that credit to Debbie. Yeah, uh, I do. I do. I'm very transparent about uh, that. I think that, you know, I, I have an unorthodox background in design. I, I went to a liberal arts school and I studied many things. Uh, I later went back to graduate school for design. Um, I, I sometimes have an uneven, uneasy relationship with design, particularly when it becomes a buzzword, it becomes a kind of panacea for people. And I like asking the tougher questions. Sometimes those questions are intellectual, sometimes they're cultural, sometimes they're emotional. Um, but I thought that we thought at the outset that Design Observer was a chance to throw a wider net around design, and it continues to be that. If, you know, if I look at the trajectory for us from what we thought in 20, 2003 and what we think now and what we're starting to do at Yale, it's really a continuation of that conversation, which is not just to preach to the choir, right. not just to talk to the people who already know and like design, ma like making things beautiful. Right. Um, or like making things functional, mm -hmm. but to to talk about the uneasiness that that you know what I have this new book that just came out, and one of the things I started to think about a lot when I was writing the book was design as a kind of false authority. That that if you make something look better, people believe in it more, and if people believe in it more, they buy things or vote for people or do things. So that if the persuasiveness of design if it does not come from from a legitimate place of honor. Right. and responsibility and heart is lethal. It's bad. It's, we can, you know, that we can do, create all kinds of havoc and damage in the world. Uh, maybe this is my midlife crisis part of the podcast. But I'm having the quarter-life crisis, so it's all good. We can, we can cry <laughs> together afterwards if you want. Um, so I thought those are, those are the tough questions I'm asking now like yeah. my, of my students, of my, of my friends. And, you know, I love teaching in a university where my friends are – in philosophy and in religious studies and in architecture and in, in, you know, history of science. Because the kinds of conversations we have around design 
are in a sense what Design Observer started out to be, which was asking questions in a bigger, deeper, um, less less siloed way. Right. Um, so I think you know, future biographers, if there are any out there who might want to have this conversation, what was Design Observer doing? Why did Jessica and Michael go to to Yale? That, that that's really at the core of it all for me is not making the answers be too easy. Okay, so here's another quote from your website. As you can tell, I went far and wide to find this research. Uh, Design Observer is now as ever a champion of distinctive voices, engaging storytellers, and brave critics. In our view, being a critic, you have to be, you have to have an opinion that is founded in something solid and real. But it also means you have to be bold, willing to take stake in the ground and hold it. Good criticism should be exciting to read, not snarky, and enlightened, not superior, analytical rather than dismissive. I am never going to read my notes off of the iPad again. But I like that quote, and that's exactly what I love about uh, Design Observer, that the articles are authentic and nuanced in their tone. Um, and there's nothing more I hate when you're on something like, you know, like brand new, under consideration, and, and people, you know, the number one comment is like, meh, this sucks. That really kind of like aggravates me because if you did that in the professional setting, you wouldn't have a job. If you did in academia, you know, the, that you'd probably be asked to leave the, the room. You know, you should have kind of be willing to contribute things that are, you know, people can learn from or, or there can be some sort of discussion. But here's Lily. She's making her entrance. Oh, oh kitty. Okay, you know, so, you should know that back in 2003 when we started Design Observer, yeah. we were adamant, Bill, I should say, of all of us, and Rick Pointer too, we were all of us adamant that we would write in complete sentences, yes. that we would spell check and, you know, grammatically try to phrase things where the commas are in the right place. And we were quite criticized. We were criticized for being old. We were criticized for being too intellectual. We were, somebody once wrote about us a called Design Observer lecture hall blogging. Because we wow. were in those days, blogs were, of course, sh shortened for weblog. Nobody said weblog, you said blog, right? And so you think about that, that, it was the acronym world. It was you were privileged, you were rewarded for being uh, brief and truncated and not writing complete sentences right. and having one word. All about speed kind of thing. All about speed, which, yeah. which in a sense, you know, it grew up and became Twitter, which is, you know, a very shortened version of an argument, but... But I think, to come back to your original question, I think that the, the, the pr uh, pride and originality of, a, of an opinion, that the idea that criticism comes from you not trying to get likes, right. you're not looking for leverage from your public in terms of retweeting, which doesn't mean that we don't love it, and right. we do love it, it's how we've grown our social media profile. But I think we've tried to be very clear about saying things our own way, and not just delivering news by re-delivering someone else's news. Yeah. So while we use the e what I call the ecosystem of social media to push out the news that we have or the opinions that we have, we're not just retweeting, retweeting, retweeting other things and having that be the case. And I think that that's something we've really stuck to. Right. And I, I think it's important too because like there, there is kind of like this, you know, you have to get out really quickly. And I remember taking classes in college about journalism and, and uh, really the kind of the you know, they talked about getting disseminating news so quickly that it's not even being checked. And I think that the same thing kind of holds true in the design world where people are so quick to get you know, an idea out, to be the first one who gets that kind of viral, meh, this sucks comment. Um, and a lot of times, too, it's unwarranted, too. I think, like, in particular, um, in an upcoming guest, I think it's going to be this coming Thursday, is it going to be Ron Burridge from Hershey? Um, you know, that, that was ridiculed because it looked like some, like, poop emoticon. 
I mean, that, I, and it was a beautiful identity system that people spent months on. They still have it, and, and they and they stuck by it. But that that's rare, and I think that it's important too. That there, you know, there's no need to have that immature discussion. I mean, you can have that on Facebook, you should have that as Twitter. But I think as designers, it's important to kind of keep the integrity of these conversations. And if these and if these forums kind of just turn into you know who's going to have the most clever comment, well, you could have done that on Facebook. And I think that Design Observer, with its kind of academic tone, keeps pe- you know keeps those people away because they don't want to you know partake in that conversation but who needs them right right who needs them exactly exactly we all probably need them <laughs> yes okay so like many young designers uh, i'm trying to get a foot in the door working in you know the big city uh, living outside new york and and just having graduated from college um and i'm very obviously a very extroverted person and love meeting people and even i have a really hard time <laughs> have a really hard time uh you know kind of establishing these connections and, and, and getting my resume to the right people and stuff. It's very hard. And uh, I, was, it was, I was interested to find that uh, when researching for you today that you had a very similar story and then you ended up somehow being picked up by NBC. And so I'll, yeah. let, I'll let you tell a story. You can probably tell it better than me, but I'm glad to see well, I'm not alone in my struggle. The, recession, <laughs> the first recession or a recession back in the 80s yeah. and I quit the job. I was really interested in television. I'd been an actress in college. I'd been in I'd been in twenty four plays in four years. Wow. Which is why I didn't get great grades, but I had a great time. Yes. And I studied so it's graphic design by day, theater by night. And in those days to work in television, you either did um, cable news or you did soaps. And I ended up getting this job reading scripts for a living, working for a producer who was looking for writers to develop as soap opera writers. And to this day, it ended up being, I have to say, great experience as a writer. Because you had to do so much reading and so much writing that you had to just pay attention to what was important. So long story short, I ended up writing for six months um, uh, at a show called Guiding Light. I was a showrunner at a show called As the World Turns. I did every job. I was everything from a gopher to the assistant to the head writers. I wrote long you said a gopher? Gopher. You could have been a tree. It could have been worse. I was a gopher (laughs) as in a person who goes for things. So we called them. I was a gopher. Gotcha. Um, but I ended up, I mean, I, my first writing job, I was writing a script um, in which Meg, Meg Ryan was on the show. And you're very young, Meg, Meg Ryan. You've got And mail. I look back at the scripts that I wrote, and they were so visual. It was like there was a visual person struggling to break free. So there's a scene in which her boyfriend was stuck, uh, her, the person she was having an affair with was hiding in a closet. And her husband, or, or then boyfriend, a legitimate boyfriend came to the door. And in order to keep the attention away from the closet, I had her make a piece of toast and have the toast get stuck in the toaster. And she's just fought with a piece of toast in the toaster for 10 minutes. And it was this sort of Lucille Ball kind of, you know, um, a crazy thing where we're just like, we called it business. Like the business of her with the toast in the toaster pulled the focus away from this other thing. And so... I mean, it's a ridiculous example, except that it's in some ways a good example of how, for me, the translation of conflict was visual. Right. Um, the other thing it taught me was how to pay attention to the rhythm of the way people talk, which is not so different from understanding the rhythm of composition of a page when you're an editorial designer or the rhythm of uh, a poster. And in a sense, again, was an early demonstration of my interest in pictures and words. Um, After six months, I thought it was a ridiculous thing to do for a living. The best thing about it was naming villains after my ex-boyfriends, which at the time... Oh, my God, that's so cool. (laughs) ...to be in plentiful abundance. So there were a lot of ex-boyfriends and a lot of villains. And so there was a matchmaking thing going on. 
Um, but then I, I got a job working for a friend of my father's who was a very serious designer. He never stopped working. He, uh, he, half of his work was in advertising, which I hated, but he did a lot of editorial design, which I loved. And he paid me minimum wage. And after about a year of that, I decided I needed to go back to graduate school and, and do all the things that I hadn't done well because I'd been doing so much theater. Right. So I came back and I did full-on graphic design for two years here at Yale. And, and then from there, I went to Philadelphia and I was the design director of a Sunday magazine, the Sunday magazine of the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, which was an amazing job because we had to put out a magazine every four days. Wow. Uh, every Sunday there was a magazine. And so, you, again, long was, hours there. Like writing for the soaps every week, you couldn't get precious about your work. You just had to get it out there, which didn't mean you couldn't be principled. But it also meant it was during the Gulf War in the early 90s by then, and they slashed my budget. So I ended up doing my own photography, my own illustration, my own design, and I got to do everything. And it was, I was a little one man band. We, we won a bunch of awards. I had a lot of fun. And then I started my own little studio and did that for a year. And then by that time, I met Bill Drentel, and then he left Drentel Dog Partners, and we formed Winter House. So that's my life in a nutshell. That's Boom. Cool. That's, that's pretty quick. Yeah. I'm I had in my, in my head personally that when I got out of college that, you know, I have like a relatively decent portfolio and, you know, I have like everything's all my ducks are lined up in a row. And then you go out into the work world and it's not as forgiving as, as you would like to say the least. And it's even with like this, you know, the connectivity of, of LinkedIn and, you know, I've, those resources are great. This pod, a lot of the the guests on this podcast have come from things like that. But in terms of like actually lining up a job or a full time job or something like that, that can be quite difficult. What What would you recommend? Like, what's the best way to go out into the design world? It's, it's two things to say. Yeah. Go ahead. Things to say. There's two things I think you need to do to distinguish yourself, and um, particularly now that you know Behance and. 99 designs. I mean, so much of this stuff gets put out online. Actually, I'm going to say three things. It's the third thing. I'll take it all. I'll take as much as you can give here because I need it. <laughs> the third thing I'm going to say first, which is, and in your case, I think very interesting, which is to not be afraid to be who you are. Right. You're extroverted. Maybe your way in is going to be through that. Right. You know, you're introverted. Maybe your way in is through that. At least you're not going to try to be Debbie Millman. You're going to be who you want, right? You're not going to try to be me or Michael, any of these people. I'm still trying to be Michael. <laughs> I told him. He knows. It's okay. We've established it. I think there's an authenticity and an honestness in that. Um, and to not be afraid to be the, the human part of who you are. I think that that leads to you finding voice in your own work and specificity in your own capacity for expression. That even though employers, if you're young, are going to want to know that you know Photoshop and Illustrator, I think that you shouldn't be afraid to be who you are. Which leads to my point number two. Point number two is you must, at all costs, do your own work, which means you come home on the weekends, you come up with an idea for a company, you design its logo. You want to uh, make a magazine, you get your friends together, each do an illustration for a different page. You figure out a way to have self-initiated work always right. because then your portfolio from place to place isn't about the work you did for your employers. It's about who you are and what you can do. It lets you experiment. It keeps you loose. It right. keeps you engaged. And... I always did that, and the people that I respect and honor and know, and I think probably would, would say the same. I think that really, I can almost think of nobody who hasn't done their own work. And that work could be, you could secretly have like, you know, type, typefaces you're designing. You, you could be painting. It doesn't really yeah. matter if you're making something. Making something for yourself. And the third thing is to never stop doing that. So the third thing is to never stop making. 
is to feel the urge to produce. Yes. Sometimes it, you do it as a collector. And you're on, you need bottle caps, right. baseball cards, you, you know, stuff you find at garage sales, stuff you find in your own studio, things that you see. I, I'm working on a project right now with a painter. Uh, I'm writing. I don't ordinarily write about people unless they're dead, so they can't disagree with me. But this is a guy <laughs> who's an important mentor to me. He's having a little show here in the fall, and he's asked me to write about his work. And so I've, I've used it as an opportunity to make a series of studio visits. And one of the things that I've learned from him that every time I go to visit him, there are different things on the wall. Now, designers notoriously always put stuff that inspires them on their wall. Fair enough. What he does is he moves it around. So the juxtaposition of two things change from week to week. And you can almost see his eye and his mind recompositing comparisons and juxtapositions and contrasts, defining what interests him in different ways. Some of them are methodical. Some of them are formal. Some of them are based on color. Some of them are based on form. It doesn't matter. But the point is, is he's 84 years old, and his mind never stops. Right. And that has been, for me, I mean, I look, I, I, I'm looking to him as a way to figure out how to grow old gracefully as an, as an artist and a maker. 21, 22? Yeah, I, I, he's 84. <laughs> I love this guy. I love what he does. And I always have. He's always been, and he's been doing this for 60 years, right? Wow. Okay. So my point is that the the... I'm going to use a big word here, but it, it's it's useful, I think. He's indefatigable, right? You don't fatigue easily. You just keep making as a way to inspire yourself to keep making. My other example is a young woman, probably about your age, who interviewed here at Yale a number of years ago for the graduate program in graphic design, and I was fortunate that year to be on her jury, on the admissions jury. And she had come from someplace very far away. I want to say Beijing. It might have been Hong Kong. It might have been... Singapore, someplace in Asia. So she'd had like a 16 or 18 hour flight to get to the United States. And she made on the plane a book out of the plastic fork for her meal and the lid from her meal. And the, she'd taken apart the, the, the container from the milk for her tea. She had used the, the, like the detritus of the things that she had on the plane. And she'd made this thing because she couldn't be away from her studio for an entire two-day period and not be producing something. Yeah. And it, she blew the jury away because it was that gesture of the need to make sense of her world through the making of a thing with whatever was in her orbit right. that was so remarkable. And now that's one demonstration. There are many. So from a 20-something coming from Asia to an 84-year-old man who de never stops going to a studio, somewhere in that arc, you need to find yourself. And that, to me, is not about employers or portfolios, or Behance. That's about finding your way in the world as a visual person. And that, to me, is really important. I remember, uh, I have this kind of vivid memory. I'm always trying to um, pinpoint at what point I first became a graphic designer or first became a creative person. And uh, I'm showing how young I am here, but when the Titanic came out, that was a big deal, and I was a slightly younger lad. And uh, I, my dad had a big stack of like white paper, and I remember there was probably like 300 pieces of paper there, and I used every single one of them, and I created the biggest model of the Titanic that I possibly could. And my dad went from like going off the off the rails, get like yelling, and then uh, you know he he was like really upset because I wasted all his paper. His office was a disaster. And then like five minutes later, he came up and he knocked on the door. And was like, hey, bud, could I talk to you? And, and you know, I think he was, like, so proud that I kind of just made something. And I, I kind of owe it to my parents because they always kind of just let me do these kind of crazy things back in the day. 
Like I used to, I used to think this is really embarrassing. I can't believe I'm going to say this on the internet, but I'm just going to say it. When I was younger, I wanted to be Santa Claus. I like thought I was him. And I used to make my entire basement like the North Pole. And I would just remember having like these like moments of like euphoric, like I could just see it. And in my mind, it was all there. Santa, Mrs. Claus, the whole thing, it was all there. And I remember those moments. And, and now that I'm kind of doing this podcast and I'm like, editing it and getting to meet all these people and, you know, getting to post. And it's that same kind of like euphoric childlike feeling of just like, this is amazing. Who cares if anybody sees this? I don't care if I get any likes. And that's kind of like my whole life has been like that. And I think you're kind of born with that. And I think that you and Michael and, you know, look at Sean Adams. I mean, if burning settlers cabin, that thing is just like growing forever. And, it, and, you know, he must spend hours on that, but what, what yeah, I, and I, don't, I don't mean to take anything away from Sean, but um, he gave me the best tip ever recently. It has nothing yeah. to do with time. Yeah. Uh, it has to do with gin. With who? Really good gin. Oh, gin, really good, yes. Really good vodka. Yeah, he introduced me to the most amazing cocktail, yes. which is gin and fresca. And fresca? So good. Really? That sounds yeah. good. Like, I, it's it's where I really he needs to go. I'm going on record saying that it is Sean Adams who introduced me to. Sounds kind of like a kind of like a weird thing, but <laughs> so good. Yes, I so believe it. he's got good taste. You, he does, and every time he updates his profile picture, I'm always really impressed. It's always like very like tastefully done. But uh, that helps actually to, helps to be as photogenic as Sean Adams. That's true, or as good looking. One of the two. I'm you know. But um, I'm so happy that you said that. And since you're going on the record and, you know. On the record, outing him as the person who recommends really amazing podcasts. Yes. And that is this is my favorite part of the podcast, the part where I lose the notes and we just talk about random things. So yeah. since we're on the record. What's and Fresca and Jim? I'm te- yeah, exactly. We're off. We're off the beaten trail. So here's my idea. Ready? Yeah. So uh, it has to do with cocktails. So this is the perfect segue. I was laying in bed last night, and my bed's like right over there. I'm in my room. Uh, I was laying in bed last night, and I had this idea. I literally jumped out of my bed and ran to my computer and wrote it down as fast as I can. Ready? It's yeah. called, I, I'm trying to see which way is better, whether it be cocktails and creatives or creatives and cocktails. I think creatives and cocktails is way better. And have, yes, like, like, like Seinfeld with the co- comedians in cars getting coffee. Yes, yes. You're exactly. going to do designers and cocktails. No. Hey. Creators and cocktails, double C's. Creators and cocktails, sorry. And the Create, ampersand. If creators any, and learn their cocktail recipes, yeah. Could you imagine? That would be amazing. It's, it's going to yeah. be, I think We're now, starting with Sean Adams. Uh, yes, yeah, Sean Adams and I, we will, we will Skype have cocktails. Sean, this is an invite, an open invite. Um, I think that'd be so fun. I'd like to I have like so. Brian Collins on there, like, you know, all these people, you know, I want people who are going to kind of shake things up. Yeah, and he has to, he has to drink, a, drink a Tom Collins, I guess. I know. And, uh, but yeah, Sean Adams, Jessica Hish. I, if you, I, don't, I don't know if you know her, but she's going to be on that. We got we to the party or the design Another one. I think you should do Jessica Walsh, Jessica Hish, and me together. Yes. Dude, hell yeah. Are you guys all friends? Are you <laughs> no, but we're, we're three Jessicas. That's true. Jessica's in cocktails. I'll be the producer. I can do it. <laughs> That's a good idea though, right? I was thinking like Brendan Grotesque and then like a beautiful ampersand like right in the middle. All black, no color, just black, black and white. And we could have it at like, and then if it really takes off, then we could, this is what I'm talking about with like, they're just letting your mind go crazy. Then if it really takes off, we could have the AIGA host it and we could have it, we could have it at like the Wooly in the city. And then we can have like a panel 
And then everyone goes around and talks about the drink and why it's their favorite drink. This is good. I once went to an AIJ event that was a wine tasting and label critique. Wow. And the more wine the designers drank, the more out of control and crazy was the critique. There was yes. an enormous amount of wine being consumed. And so the clarity of the comments was inversely proportionate to the amount of wine consumed. But I think that's why it would be good to have it as like, I don't know about like a panel in front of a whole bunch of people. That can get ugly. But if it's, you know, if, if it's something that we... Like cocktails with the creatives. That's pretty funny. You yeah. can own that. Creatives and cocktails. Yeah. Right? Better ring to it the other way around? I don't know. As long as Sean Adams and his bottle of Fresca are there, I'll bring the gin. I'll do anything to hang out with Sean Adams. I'll bring the Fresca and he can bring the gin. He's the man. I need to stop fan, fanboying all these I, people. And I have a very, I have a photograph that I will send you of Michael Beirut sitting in my kitchen holding my daughter's bunny with one arm and holding a glass of bourbon with the other. Oh, my God. And the, the caption was Beirut, bunny, bourbon. I love it. We can do a whole alphabet of this. Yes. You know, I have like, find 26 designers, each of whom's name begin with letters, and match them to cocktail. And you could do just a podcast of 26 people matching them to their cocktail. That's so good. I just, I, I just messaged uh, AIJ in New York today, actually. And they, uh, I think it was like one of the people reached out to me and they gave me an email address to write them to. So I'm going to talk about it amongst us first. We're going to keep it, you know, in-house. And right. then if it blows up, then we'll make it a thing. Right. When, you a, get, when you get Absolute to sponsor the first episode. I'll do it. I'm very resourceful. <laughs> I will go on LinkedIn and I'll find the people from the, like, the distributors. We'll make it happen. I don't yeah. even know. Where, I think we should just... You absolute. You get Ashley Axios, the designer at the White House. Yes. Drinking Absolute. Then you get Beirut drinking bourbon. Let's keep going. That could be good. Colin's and, doing... Colin's doing Cointreau. Tom Collins. Isn't that a, that's a drink, right? I think it's be hysterical. I know. Yeah. That's good. Okay. I think Next question. <laughs> I don't even know where to go from that. I think that might be. I think that's too good. That might be the end. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we, all right. We have five minutes here. It's forty minutes. We'll call it forty-five minutes. If you had, uh, you kind of did already. But if you had to give any advice to uh, people like myself who are venturing out into the design world about, you know. Um, the way to carry yourself and, and the way to um, present yourself, what, what would it be? Always send a thank you note. Um, I'm, like, I'm like 11 thank you notes behind then. Always send Should a I thank send you, you one? I tell my students, if a professor has a glass of water with you, send them a thank you note. Right. Anybody who does anything for you, send a thank you note. I'm, I'm astonished how few people do that. And, and when they don't, I remember. It's, I, I'm not a grudge-keeping person, yes. and I'm a very generous person, but there is one thing that people do. This is a weird way to answer your question. That's okay. Besides, thank you. It's one thing this that has people, gotten weird already. It's awesome. I'm very This might weird. be my favorite podcast so far. So. <laughs> There's one thing that people do that really, really, really pisses me off, and that is if you ask someone to give you a recommendation, you must write to them before you submit their name on the request. Because what happens with, in the age of automation is that the institution where you put my name will write to me and ask for that thing before you can write to me. And then I won't do it. In other words, you're applying to Yale. And you say, can, will you give me a recommendation? And I say, sure. If, if you put my name on that form and submit it before you ask me, Yale will ask me before you ask me. And then I won't do it. Because it seems to me incredibly arrogant 
yeah. that you would ask someone to take the time to do it. Okay, that's one thing. Second thing is, if you ask someone for a recommendation, if you're applying to graduate school, and I say yes, and then seven schools ask me to fill out forms, that's not okay. You have to say, I'm applying here and here and here. Would you do it to these three places? You ask for every single one separately because every single one has to be filled out separately. Right. And even when they're automated, it's just an assumption that never ends well. And other than that, I am so nice to everybody. Every student who asks me for help, I write back. Every interview I say I'll do. If it's ever, and, and I learned this from Milton Glaser. Milton Glaser will cancel a social event if there's something that a student needs from him. He will never cancel his class for something else. Wow. Students always come first. And I learned that from him very early, and I am the same way. So I am very generous to my students and former students. And if I had to die for every recommendation I've ever written, I would be a very rich woman. Yeah. So the only thing I ask in return is that people are gracious enough to ask me themselves before they submit my name to an institution and to send a thank you. Sure. I've done tenure recommendations for people who have gotten tenure who never thank me. Like, I think that's not okay. That's not okay, no. In, in an age in which civility is really, uh, you know, un, unfortunately not as um, common as we would like to think it is. Right. That those things really go very far. And, and I, I just think, I mean, this book I've just written is really about doing the right thing and understanding how design is really a humanist construct. And that means actually behaving honorably and saying thank you and not not, not saying thank you. Right. Exactly. Thanks, the name of your new book is just be, to be called Design, the Invention of Desire. And it came out at the end of May from Yale University Press. And it's 12 essays on design as a humanist condition. Awesome. And I did the paintings for the book. So the, uh, the illustrations of the book are all paintings wow. that are based on tissue histologies inside the human body. So they look like abstract form, right. but they are, in fact, the opposite. They are representative of things that are uh, very accurate scientific facts about heart ventricles and spleens and cells, which we all look alike. So it basically levels the playing field around politics and around conduct. Um, and it's about things like design and consequence, you know, which, why do we think viral is a good thing? Not such a good thing. Why do we say hacking is a good thing? Maybe not such a good thing. Right. So it really looks at language and it looks at the ideas that we tend to, at this moment in, in contemporary culture, look at as uh, being worthy of celebration and kind of mines them and digs a little bit deeper to look at how we might actually question ourselves and each other with a bit more humility. Right. Big chapter on humility in there. I'm going to read that for sure. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to also put that in the comment section below. I always, Please do. I always wanted to, that was on my bucket list to do that when they go like this. Right down here. Down go, to the go buy back. this book right Both here. Yeah. Okay, well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. This does not go as I expected, but I love it. I love the direction it went in. Well, I hope I gave you something you can use. And, Absolutely. Uh, the whole thing. And when, it, and when it goes up on YouTube, let me know, and we will promote it on Design Center. That sounds great. And, um, yeah, the, the creators and cocktails thing. We're going to talk. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going I'm to sign off here, and then we're going we're gonna to hash this out. But thank you so much okay. for coming on.